With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. I'm your host, Nina Pantic. My co-host, Irina Falcone, is out playing on the pro tour right now. Our guest today is Paul Anacone. Paul is an absolutely esteemed tennis coach, former player, and tennis channel analyst. He joins us in the L.A. studio. We get to talk about his incredible resume, which includes Pete Sampras, Tim Henman, Roger Federer, Sloane Stevens, and now Taylor Fritz. He's the author of a book, Coaching for Life, and he's been a tennis channel analyst for five years. He also happens to be a former player, ranked as high as number 12 in the world in singles and number three in doubles. Let's jump into that chat right now. Paul Anacone, welcome to Tennis.com Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. I was wondering when I was going to get on this. I mean, I was waiting for your invite, and luckily you squeezed me in now. It's good. It's an honor to have you, especially oh, yeah. in Los Angeles, because <laughs> you're comfortable here. You just got off set. You're covering the ATP finals. What is life like for you in a, the stretch of the season right now? Um, you know, it's always fun because it's been a long year, but it's been a fun year. Uh, we've seen a lot of new faces, both on the men's and women's tour. And uh, whenever we get to come into the studio, it, we have a great time. And it's such a good team. Um, we get to combine a lot of good work with a lot of good laughs. And I think that's what makes the day go by so fast. And you combine that also with all the tennis. And, and this year, it's really interesting at the end of the year. I uh, get to see the year-end championships, the top eight players, see where they finish up, a couple of fresh new faces that are there. So, look, it is a culmination of a long year, but a fun year. What excites you the most when you look ahead to 2020? Are there any certain players that you're amped up about to watch, to talk about? Well, I, I think it's been an interesting year because we've seen a bunch of new fresh faces on tour. And for a long time now, we've been wondering if Roger and Rafa and Novak are ever going to open the door at all so these young players can get in. And they're still dominating the majors. But look, we've got three new players at the year-end championships in the top eight, which is terrific. Uh, you see Sitsipas there. Uh, you see Berrettini there, and you see Medvedev there. And so that's it. that's their first time. And then there's a huge group behind them as well. Shapovalov finished so great at the end of the year. Uh, Alex Dimonar as well. Felix Ojeali-Asim. So the new fresh faces. And, of course, I've got, I'm a little biased, too, because I get to work with Taylor Fritz. And, and Taylor's had a good year as well, finishing right around 30 in the world. So a lot of promise, a lot of possibility. And, and for me, it's fun to kind of speculate and project and, and to see what they can do um, in 2020 is going to be a lot of fun. Let's talk a little bit about you. Um, Let's do that. I think I think we have to. Of course. So you're a tennis channel analyst, commentator, tennis coach, former ATP number 12, former ATP doubles number three. What do you... You've been studying A me. lot of studying. Gosh. What do you consider yourself? Former player, current analyst, coach? Tennis junkie. Okay. Tennis junkie. I'm a tennis lifer. I've been very spoiled. I've had a great life. I've gotten to you know, chase dreams that I've had since a little kid. And I've been able to do it all the way through my middle age. You know, I've been in so many different 
aspects of the game and learned so much um, through all the different roles. You know, playing on tour was was a dream come true. You know, getting to play on center court at Wimbledon, um, center court of the U.S. Open, and, and to be able to live a life chasing a dream in a fuzzy yellow tennis ball, not many people get to do that. And, and through that, um, a lot of pathways uh, and doors have been open. I've been a lot of things in tennis. I've been on the ATP board of directors. I've been consulting at tennis tournaments. Um, I've had a tennis academy. I've run charity events. I, I've had a lot of different roles, and, and in each and every one of them, the commonality has been really just the connection with the people. I, I love that I get to do things with people that I like. Um, and to me, that's really what it's been like since the beginning. And, and it's interesting because our whole life as kids chasing a dream is it's all about us. It's an individual sport. When's my next practice? When's my next tournament? When's my, 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 me, 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 me. So <laughs> to transition from that, into environments where you have to collaborate with others has been fun because you've done things as an individual athlete in isolation and now you get to do it with teams and and here for the last few years at tennis channel it's been really a joy because we have such a good team and we have a lot of people who care about each other who love the sport and uh, generally have a really good sense of humor so we have fun doing it too. I mean, speaking of making changes from me to team, how did you transition from player to coach? And was there a period where you weren't involved in tennis ever, or did you just jump right into working with Pete Sampras, one of the greats of the game? You know, I, I, you know, I think one of the biggest things is we all get dealt a certain hand of cards, right? And, and when I was 28, 29, I got injured. Um, I had surgery on my foot. I was out for seven months. Um and that gave me my first sense of kind of reality, of mortality, of tennis mortality. And, and in that time, I got my real estate license. Um, I got involved with the ATP Player Council, uh, then the ATP Tour Board of Directors. I became a consultant at the New Haven Tournament. And I started to branch out a little bit, and I saw the window starting to close. So in, in a weird way, that was a good reminder to me, a good awakening of what was next. And And... It wasn't so sad. It was kind of like this is life. It was, I, I think, it was a really good reminder of opportunities that can come up, and, and that you know you you have to enjoy what you do in that moment, but also know there are other things going on, and there are other possibilities that can be um, kind of chased and looked at. And, and so I looked at that that injury time as something a really good growing experience for me. So ultimately, when my um, herniated back made me kind of a herniated disc in my back kind of forced me into retirement. I then started some coaching. I did some stuff uh, with Jim Grab. I did some stuff with uh, Doug Flack. I worked a little bit with some of the other players and, and, and then I was friends with, um, uh, with Pete and, and with the late great Tim Gullickson as coach. And when Tim Gullickson got sick with uh, brain cancer, I, I basically, was just kind of called in to help make a horrible situation a little bit better because we're all pretty friendly. And um, it, it worked out um, pretty tragically that Timmy passed. Um, and then for me, it became a catalyst to a coaching career that I've been pretty lucky to have. You know, I've been around some great players, and I would always argue that as great as the players have been, their, per their, their personalities and who they are as people are better. You know, Pete Sampras and Tim Henman and 
Roger Federer and, and Sloan Stevens, um, and now helping Taylor. I've been around a really good group of people. And um, within that time, I've also been what I, what I categorize as involved in institutionalized tennis, which is working with federations. I ran player development for the USTA. Um, I was head coach of men's tennis for the Lawn Tennis Association in England. And I've been involved with Tennis Australia, helping Craig Tiley with their player development as well. So institutionalized tennis hasn't institutionalized me yet, but it's, uh, you know, keeps you on the brink, bureaucracy and administrative re- responsibility. So I've had, I've been really lucky. You know I mean? I've been really, really lucky and um, a lot of nice people and a lot of great opportunities and most importantly, a lot of good personal experiences. And you've never gotten tired of watching tennis? No, I, I, you know, I'm a, first of all, I'm a fan of greatness in anything people do. I really enjoy watching how people achieve and, and learning the different processes of um, the pathways to that achievement. And, and that, that kind of um, got me into writing a book, Shameless Plug. Um, you know, I wrote a book a couple of years ago that came out called Coaching in Life, which was really just a culmination of my journey, which to me has been all about just keeping my antenna up and watching how people become successful. You know, Roger Federer, Pete Sampras, and look at these traits that people have that become successful. So for me to watch tennis, I still am so intrigued to see people try to problem solve under pressure. And one of the most amazing things about tennis is you're out there basically naked. It's just you. You've got to figure it out. There's no team. There's nobody else around you. It's you against one other person. And you have to problem solve. And in life and um, in human nature, there's nothing more interesting to me than watching how people react and act under pressure. And and that to me is um, interesting. It's enjoyable. And it's provocative. You mentioned this resume casually. We got... Pete Sampras, Tim Henman, Roger Federer, a little bit Sloan Stevens, Taylor Fritz. What is a standout memory? Do you have a favorite memory of your time with Pete or a favorite memory of your time with Roger? Because both were, were lengthy stints. Yeah, I, I was with Pete for over seven years and with Roger for four. Um, I think Pete's was, they're all very different, you know, and, and, and different personalities to me. Look, that's the key to coaching an individual sports, very different than team sports. In team sports, the teams tend to kind of fall into line with the coach's philosophy and the coach's mantras and how they do things. In individual sport, if you're going to be really good at it, I think, and if you're going to be effective, you've got to learn to teach your philosophy and strategy, but you've got to learn to do it in different ways and say it in different ways because each person reacts very differently to receiving information. Roger is very different than Pete, who's very different than Tim Henman, who's very different than Sloan, who's very different than Taylor. So you have to figure out how to get your beliefs and your foundational kind of techniques across, but the way the player can receive it. So all the players have given me um, very different memories. I think, you know, Pete's was such a lengthy and interesting and fun relationship. It was my first major one with a legend. And I learned, dare I say it, probably a ton more from him than he learned from me. And um, it was very interesting because I talked to you just briefly about how people deal with adversity. He, he was 
he was amazing. I, I, I've never met a human being that is more able to understand and know what they want to accomplish and be more confident about how they're going to do it and get less distracted. I mean, he knows himself so well, knew himself so well. He did things very differently, but he knew how it worked for him. And, um, you know, probably my two biggest memories were the year that he won um, um, Wimbledon when he broke Roy Emerson's title of major titles because he was injured most of that tournament and had to get a lot of medical treatment just to play. Got a bunch of injections in his shin, couldn't practice on the off days, and he found a way to win that year, which taught me an incredible amount. And then the last title that he won in 2002 against Andre, which was so many different ways of poetic finish. Um, for same guy that he had played 12 years earlier, winning his first major in New York City. Uh, hadn't won a tournament, I believe, in 25 months. Uh, people were doubting him, and to see him kind of get back on track and to watch him lock in the last six weeks or so to prepare for that uh, it was just an amazing kind of laser-like focus and self-belief. So those two things for Pete really rung true. Roger, my biggest memories were his kind of undeniable and indefatigable joy of tennis. I mean, I've never seen anyone at that level of expectation of accomplishment that truly embraces the life that surrounds them and does it in a way that doesn't waste any energy, that's very accepting of things that he can't control, that learns to not sweat the small stuff, that totally trusts his ability in the big moments. Um, and and it's, all those things sound benign and they sound very cliched and very easy, but after being fortunate enough to travel with those two guys in particular for over a decade, their life is exhausting. I mean, every single day, press conferences, every single day, every word is dissected. Every ball you hit is dissected. It's just the beginning of the end. Is this what, you know, there's so many things that you just have to deal with. And Roger is truly the maestro dealing with all that stuff. And when we started out, the goal for Roger was to win another major title and to get back to number one. And I was fortunate enough to be sitting in the player box when he won uh, Wimbledon in 2012 and got back to number one right after that. So I, I felt very proud that I was able, in a however big or small way, participate in that and share it with not only him but a team and a family who really love their life and, and love and appreciate the people that are around them. So I've been, man, I've been spoiled. <laughs> and now I get to talk to you about it. Oh, I mean, like I said, it's an honor. It kind of feels surreal that you've spent quality time with the likes of these legends. Do you ever, have you ever felt starstruck by anyone? Maybe not by them, but because you work together, but has anyone ever thrown you off? Not really. I mean, I don't... I guess I think some of that's from my upbringing. I mean, most of my parents have always been pretty, you know, they're middle middle class educators. They're both come from the education system, school teachers. My dad is a ran a school district. My mom was a guidance counselor and educator. And I always felt like people are people, you know. And and I think my biggest reward and biggest kind of reaffirmation of that theme was really from Pete, because Pete all along Sampras always just felt like, look, I happen to be a great tennis player. I'm not curing cancer. I'm not saving the world. I'm not, I just happen to be a great tennis player. So doesn't mean I've got answers to everything. I know how to hit a ball on the court and I know how to trust it under pressure. And Pete's, I think, um, kind of 
character about just being firmly planted in the ground and knowing who he is and, and what he does to be around that for six, seven years um, as my inaugural kind of route on the tour made me just kind of not really, I guess, feel weird around people that are superstars. You know, they're, they're great at what they do, but they're just people. And I'm, I'm in awe of them. I'm in awe of what they're able to accomplish. But at the end and in the beginning, they're just people, you know? And, and so I tend to not get starstruck, but I tend to really appreciate and admire. I mean, you seem very chill. You put people at ease as well. <laughs> good, that's a good thing. It's a great thing. <laughs> but you also sound like you're very, very, very busy. How did you find time to write a book and why did you want to write the book? It's called Coaching for Life. It's thank on Amazon. You. Yep, thank you. Amazon.com and uh, iree.com, ireebooks.com and on my website, paulanacone.com. And, you know, I, you know, it was really interesting because I had... My uh, my wife, Elizabeth, uh, her late dad was a um, literary agent and a tennis fan, and he represented George Plimpton and a bunch of very famous, prominent writers, and he was a big tennis fan, and I was in his office one day, and we were just talking anecdotally about stories, and he was asking me about, this was way back in 2000, about Pete and about life on the tour, and after 20 minutes, he just looked at me and goes, why don't you write a book? I was like, well, number one, I can't write. <laughs> and he goes, of course, you just talk like you're talking. And they'll have, so he basically convinced me to do it. Um, and it, it petered out after four or five years because of some publishing issues and editors that had gotten fired and moved along. And they changed the concept a bunch of different times. I got really fatigued from it. And then I started coaching Roger again. And my wife said, you, you have to finish this book now. And, and Elizabeth is uh, really my rock and my foundation in so many different ways. And, and she really helped me through it and guided me through it and was instrumental in, in helping me kind of put things forward. And the gentleman that actually ended up self-publishing with, uh, with me, Gerald Hausman at Irie Books, was awesome. Gerald talked me through everything. We talked through chapters. We did so much work together. It was really a lot of fun. And I got kind of 75% of the way done. And I said to Elizabeth, I said, you know, I don't really want to, this is taking too long. It's driving me crazy. It's such a, it's such a, um, difficult process. I don't know if I want to do this. And by the way, we're self-publishing it. It's going to cost a bunch of money and we're not going to make any money. So what's the point? She goes, wait a second. And I go, what do you mean? She goes, you're not writing this for money. And I said, why am I writing this? She goes, you're writing this because this is your story. And, and she's a storyteller. She's a, a former senior executive at MGM, worked for Oliver Stone, Francis Ford Coppola. She's amazing. And now she has her own um, production company called Pal Productions, writes, creates, directs. She's also a professor at UCLA. She clearly is the brains in the family. Um, and she said, you're not doing this for money. You're doing this so that, you know, dare I say, when you and I are both gone, and you in particular – your kids and your grandkids have this. They've got documents. They've got your life. And while your parents are still around, get them this book, you know? And I was, she just, she was awesome. And I was like, you know what? You're right. And so I finished it and got it to my mom and dad. And that was the most important moment for me in a very long time. It wasn't for the money. No, clearly, <laughs> clearly not. <laughs> I wish it was. <laughs> and then Pete wrote the forward. Yeah. So you have a good, 
Do you still have a good relationship with Pete, with Roger? Do you guys chit chat? Do you text? Do you Snapchat? You know, how, what's the relationship like with these guys? I am an IT genius. If you knew all this stuff that I could do on a computer, no, seriously, um, I do stay in touch. Pete and I play golf. We haven't played lately, but I get to stay in touch with them pretty regularly. We play golf together. Um, Roger, I see all the time on tour. They were both very generous, spent a lot of time. Roger wrote some nice stuff uh, leading into the book as well. Um, and I do get to see those guy, guys often. I think, you know, that might be one of the things I'm most proud of probably is all the people like that that I've worked with are still some of my closest friends. So, you know, I go back to that human bond of kind of getting along and, and really enjoying each other's company. Um, and like I said, I'm a fan of greatness. So when I'm around them, I still like to see how people accomplish and do things. So I still get to learn a lot and, and see them a bunch. And uh, to me, to see 38-year-old Roger Federer still waving the magic wand on a tennis court is pretty impressive. It doesn't sound like the answer to this will be yes, but is there anything in tennis or in your work or career that you have left that you really want to do? Something more? I think everything I do, I really want to do. I don't look at it as more. I look at it as new. You know, even though you're doing the same thing, you're doing it a different way, right? I'm, I'm on tour with a 22-year-old Taylor Fritz now. It's very different. He's trying to climb the, the ranks. He's trying to climb the ladder. I, I was fortunate enough to be at the top of the ladder with Pete and Roger, and, and now hopefully some of those experiences can help Taylor maximize his talent, whatever that is, whether it's two in the world, 12 in the world, 18 in the world. As long as he maximizes his talents, I will feel good about it. So to do that with Taylor, that feels great. Um, what I do at Tennis Channel and, and participate with a team that's really passionate about a sport that I love and deliver it in a way that I think is fun and hopefully adds some knowledge and understanding to our viewers out there, that, that's awesome. I mean, I love that. I love coming to the studio. I love going to the remote locations. Um, and so those two themes, you know, I don't look at it as more. I look at it as uh, new, even though they're different, they're new. What does your normal day-to-day -day life look like? As we're heading into the off season, you're saying Tennis Channel Studios, early start sometimes, but what does a day look like for you? Do you have plans to work with Taylor in a certain, um, where do you guys work together? What is a, what's a, a day in the life of Paul? Yeah, it's, it's very different depending on what's going on. And I kind of like that. You know, I've got my, when I've got, you know, the off season's coming up, for instance, beginning in December. So I'm going to have a pretty uh, condensed, but a lot of time with Taylor Fritz and David Dank. And David um, coaches Taylor with me. David does all the hard work, and I try to grab all the glory as often as possible. So that's one of the things I've learned as a senior coach. You have to do that. And then when things don't go right, you go, you know, that, that was David's idea. That wasn't me. <laughs> but in all seriousness, we've got a great team um, around Taylor Fritz. So we'll spend a lot of time together in December, getting him ready for 2020. Um, and right after that, uh, my beautiful brides put together a great family vacation for Christmas that we'll do. And then uh, the crazy traveling circus starts up again in January in Australia. And I'll be down there helping Taylor, um, commentating on some tennis for Tennis Channel, doing some work for Craig Tiley at Tennis Australia. So I've got those three themes, the three balls in the air that are juggling that hopefully will not come crashing down on me. They haven't yet. So I've got good people around me supporting me. And, and 
The schedule is awesome. I've got a great life. I'm pretty lucky. A busy, hectic, but great life. Is there a certain city or country you enjoy the most to be going to or somewhere you really want to go? I got to say every year I love Australia. I, I really love going down to Australia. It's a long haul. And I don't know if it's, I haven't quite figured out if it's the new beginning because it's the start of our year, right? It's the start of our professional year. Or is it the new beginning combined with the beautiful place that it is? I mean, it is an awesome country. The people are spectacular. The weather in January is amazing. So I think it's a little bit of both of those themes. And I love going down there. But, you know, one of the things that has not waned or died at all in me is the different personalities of the events that I come across during the year. I've got a special place in my heart for Indian Wells in March a really special place in my heart for every major. You go to Roland Garros, French Open has a different personality, and then a month later you get to go to the All-England the, the, the all England Club and see our cathedral center court, you know, and then you get to the hustle and bustle of New York at the US Open. So those different personalities to me are rejuvenating. They are fuel to my soul. And, and so to have that um, to look forward to all the time, and then you throw in all of what I would categorize the accoutrements, which are spectacular events in and of themselves. Washington, D.C. in the summer, we get to go to a tennis channel. We get to go down to Houston to do the event there. Um, all the other Masters Series, Cincinnati, Miami. Um, I just got back from Paris and Basel. And Basel, ironically enough, um, was the first European tournament I qualified for as a 21-year-old and got to the quarterfinals and lost to the late, great Vetus Gerolitis there. And I was talking to the tournament organizer about it this trip. And I was like, you know, back in 19, <clears throat> I qualified here and yada, yada, in the same exact arena. So I've got so many fond memories. Sometimes they make me feel really old, but ultimately they make me feel really lucky. You've been a player and the coach for, I'd say, the majority of your life. Sure. How did you make the transition and get adjusted to being on camera and being hearing the sound of your own voice? Was that tough at all or a natural That fit? was brutal. I mean, I still can't stand how I sound. And, and luckily, I've got some great people that have done this a lot longer than I've done it that have helped me. The, the entire talent team at Tennis Channel has been amazing to me in terms of teaching me. And then you have the people in our ear that have been spectacular, you know, from Bob Wiley to Ross Schneiderman to Mark Huska to the entire production team and all the producers um, have been really helpful. And, and so I don't think I'll ever get over the yuck feeling of how I feel about myself talking, but nothing will erase the joy I feel about being able to watch a match and comment on it because it's my passion and also, too, as a player, you know, you, you have some press conferences, you get in front of the camera and you get to speak. It's a different mode now because you have to emote a little more. And I tend to be a little bit more withdrawn. And also, when I coached Pete and Roger, you kind of have to be careful. You know, you, you have to be even more mindful of what you say. You have to make sure you articulate things the way that is representative of who those people are. You know, you work for them. And, and you never want to be someone you're not, and you never want to be dishonest, but I believe there's a way to deliver things um, so that they're able to be absorbed um, without being, you know, really high or low on the totem pole of 
is that acceptable or is he an idiot or, you know, you, you want to be careful. And, and so I, I, again, have had a lot of years of informal education and put my foot in my mouth many a time. And I'm sure I will down the road, but hopefully it won't be too offensive when it happens. But do you have some experience with maybe uh, putting your foot in it? You can compare it maybe to a loss or um, a, your player losing or something. You've had experience kind of dealing with these ups and downs. So it does that help? It, it does. It, it really does. And, and it's hard because now from the media side, right, it, we want the news. We want the story. We want the wow factor. And which is very different when I'm coaching Pete and Roger. And when I played, it's more about big picture. Each week there's a new opportunity. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. You know, you have to go through this very pragmatic kind of approach. Whereas now, as someone that's commentating, it's a, wow, can you believe what happened? Is this the beginning of the end or is this the new beginning of another great, you know, we want the story now. So it's very different. Um, but I embrace both, and I think I understand the reasoning behind both. Um, and luckily for me, I've been able to participate in both. Is it weird ever commentating on, like, Roger's match, or have you commented on Taylor's matches? Is it strange, or does it give you a little bit of an advantage? I haven't commentated on Taylor's matches, and I hope not to. Um, Roger, I don't mind at all, um, because I totally... You know, I know our relationship. I trust it. I know what he's trying to do. And I can be totally factual about what's going on without feeling like, uh-oh, is he going to think, you know, did I say something wrong? He knows what I think. But if he does something wrong, I can say, that wasn't, that was a bad shot. You know, Roger needs to, he, he can, you know, one of the things I learned about coaching Roger was I couldn't believe how receptive he was to constructive criticism. I mean, it was unbelievable it takes a lot to get that man's pulse up and get really frustrated. And he's re that's one of the reasons why he's great. As you can say, Rod, you know, you didn't hit any body serves today. When a guy's in up inside the baseline, you got to go with the, you know, you're right. You know, I need to, got to make sure that I can do that to get them off. He's very good about taking constructive criticism. So I, I don't generally feel guarded because I know I'm there to speak the truth. I'm going to do it in a way, hopefully, I'm not a big believer in even if I'm not a big believer in being abrasive, I think you can make your point without totally alienating people. And you have to be able to take constructive criticism. And I try to pride myself the same way. I mean, I hope all, all the folks I work with here at Tennis Channel will tell me when, you know, you like they do in my ear, when I get uh, Monsbach in my ear and saying, no one cares, Paul, and it's time to be quiet. I can take that. You know, it's fine. <laughs> Does that actually happen? Oh, yeah. Monzi's good at that. He knows exactly when to reel me in. So, and you just move on. Yeah. I mean, look, we're trying to put a product out there. If, you, if that bothers you or if you make a mistake and you can't laugh at it, that's a problem. You got to be able to laugh. I mean, we have some, of, some of our best TV has been mistakes, and I think that, that ma that's what makes life fun. Do you ever have moments with Taylor where you're like, back when I was working with Roger, or back when I was with Sampras, he did this. Why don't you do it better like this? Or no? I, I try not to go there, but I think that's one of the reasons why I'm, I add value is I've been through that. And I know they're very different people, but experientially, I can look at things and go, you know, here are some patterns that have been really successful. You're very different than Pete. You're very different than Roger. But here's some themes that philosophically, if you if you strategize like this, you're going to get the most out of yourself. And and with Taylor, who is very strong-willed and very opinionated, you better have some good information when you get into a debate with him. 
Is it fun, though, having someone with oh, a little yeah. bit of personality? I love it. He's a great kid. I love him, and he's got a good group around him. And, you know, I've got a 22-year-old as well, so I understand that dynamic. But he's a smart kid, and, and he is an unconditional competitor, which is my favorite trait as an athlete. Um, so that resonates, and, and he just wants to see how good he can be. And he's been doing very well. And it's also, I'm going to go back to your book for a quick second. There's a section in your book where you talk about belief. And there's a line where you compare it to religion. And for some reason, that really stuck in my head. Um, is that something that maybe the greats do better? And something that a young player like a Taylor or even like a Sloan is something that they can work on is having that un, unshakable belief. It's so hard to even have that in your day-to-day -day life, let alone on a tennis court You're every right. day. Right. And that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book as, as, as seriously as um, a metaphor for life. I mean, there's a reason... Roger's great. There's a reason Rafa's great. There's a reason Bill Gates is great and successful. Uh, there's a reason that people succeed. And, and uh, much of it is the belief. There is some talent that you can't teach. No one's going to have Roger's talent. You know, no one's going to have that. No one's going to have Sampras's talent. Um, but the habits that they form around that talent help them maximize it. And, and so the idea with a young player and a young person, more importantly, is to teach them those habits that when things happen that are out of the norm, when things happen that create adversity, that create confrontation, that create doubt, that you can stand true in your beliefs and what you're trying to do and be unshakable. Look, there's no, there's no feeling I've ever been around in my life than sitting in center court at Wimbledon when it's four all in the fifth set of a final. I've never... It's, and I haven't, even, I haven't even been on the court. I've just been sitting in the player box. So to be able to be in that environment and to know in your heart of hearts, this is what I'm going to do, this is what I'm great at, and I'm going to go after it. If you really believe that, you're going to maximize your talent. And it translates across every boardroom, every classroom, every playing field, everything you do in life. And you've got to believe in that. And that's probably the biggest lesson that I've learned from those great players is in the, in the biggest moments when I looked in Pete Sampras's eyes, when he was holding the balls up to serve for a title at Wimbledon, I knew there was no one on the planet that had more laser-like focus in that moment that was more clear about what they were going to do. And he might not win, but I guarantee you he was going to be clear, committed, and confident about what he was trying to do. There's something so interesting and attractive about trying to figure out what is it that makes a tennis player top 100? What makes someone make it? What makes them number one and these legends? And I feel like you're almost trying to figure it out and give it to us. And I love that. Oh, thanks. Yeah, and that's the thing. And, and, and you can put numbers on things, but that's what, you know, that's what I actually try to stay away from, even with Taylor, who's so, you know, he's so young, but he's really driven. It's like, look, the goal is to maximize your talent. If you're asking me what number that is, I have no idea. I don't know. I don't know if it's six or two or 12. I don't know. If you continue to get better and you trust these processes, you trust what you're trying to do in the big moments, you're going to create those opportunities where it starts to feel normal to be in a semifinal, normal to be in a final in the smaller tournaments, then normal to be a final. Then, then it becomes, your environment becomes normal and you're able to trust it. And that, to me, it's the same when my daughter went out into the working world and she had to interview. How do you feel normal walking into a room with 12 executives when you're 22? How do you do that where they go, wow, this kid gets it? You know, so whether it's a center court at Wimbledon, 
or whether it's interviewing for a job or trying to get into a college or trying to convince someone to marry you, whatever it may be, you better believe in what you're trying to do and the way you're trying to deliver it. And time and time again, that philosophy has rung true in my mind because I've seen the greats do it. Again, you can't teach the natural talent of a Federer, but you can teach the habits that he has around himself that have allowed that talent to blossom. So you can't be Roger Federer just by believing we're Roger Federer. I get it. I think I get it. I, I did when I read when I read it, I did think like when you think of tennis players and professional athletes and then you think of like being at work in the office, like those I'm like, those don't connect. But the way that you phrase it, it does because not everyone's going to be Roger, but you can always believe and achieve things if you're doing things right. A hundred percent. You go into the office one day and, and you go in and you've just gotten a fight with your boyfriend and your taxes are late and your dog just died and your boss needs something from yesterday. How are you going to go in and deal with that? It's the same thing as Roger going on the court when he's got 101 fever he just got in a fight with Mirka. He lost his passport the day before. How's he going to play? It's the same thing. It's got nothing to do with forehands and backhands. It's about your mindset and what you do put yourself in a position to make sure whatever your skill sets are, they can flourish when there's adversity. And that, that to me, is something that is so rare and something that I think is pretty important in life. I think this has been educational. I don't know how else to end this other than that has been a, a lesson from Paul Anacone on how to be better at life. Ah, it's been fun. Thanks so much. I really appreciate your no, time. Thanks for having me, Nina. Paul Anacone, thank you for joining the Tennis.com podcast. From the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, this has been the Tennis.com podcast. Be sure to subscribe to stay caught up. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and every major listening app, as well as Tennis.com slash podcasts. You can also see the video of our episodes on Tennis Channel's YouTube page and Tennis.com's Facebook page. We're your hosts, Nina Pantic and Irina Falcone. We'd like to thank our team, editor and audio designer Luke Mahoney, video editor Christina Koseva, producers Alexa March and Sean O'Malley, and executive producers Shelby Coleman, Kyle Einhorn, and Andy Chu.